Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. We're going to start this morning by simply reading the passage, letting the Holy Spirit speak for himself in these words that were penned by Paul to Timothy some 2,000 years ago. If you uh, don't have a Bible, maybe you don't own a Bible, uh, there are Bibles on the back table. We would love it if you would, I think there are Bibles on the back table, we would love it if you would take one of those. It's our gift to you. Okay, let's read, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as, my, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for the words of your Bible. Thank you that they are profitable to us, even now, especially now in the 21st century. Holy Spirit, I pray that you administer these words to our hearts, that we would come by your grace to understand them and to apply them and to see that life is in them. And that we would be transformed today uh, into the likeness of Christ. As you sanctify your church, Lord, would you save the lost among us, those who have not believed the gospel. I pray you might open their hearts to receive the good news today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today, this morning, we begin a brand new 10-week journey through Paul's second letter to Timothy, his young ministry partner, in a series that we've titled Passing the Torch. Love that. And throughout this series, uh, over the next 10 weeks, we're going to be considering the idea of disciple-making, of discipling. Discipling, of course, being the delight-filled duty of all Christians. But for those who might be unfamiliar with the term discipling, it can simply be, de- be defined as this. Helping others to love and follow Jesus. A disciple of Jesus is someone who loves and follows Jesus. And therefore, when we make disciples, when we engage in discipling, We are simply helping someone else to love and follow Jesus. It's pretty straightforward. Now, the words discipling and disciple-making are nowhere to be found in 2 Timothy. (laughs) However, let me propose to you this morning, before any of you, you you know, 
call, call me doing, you know, like eisegesis, reading into the text what I shouldn't be. It's essentially what I'm going for. Before you do that, let me propose to you this, that the letter itself is, in fact, Paul, Timoth- uh, Paul discipling Timothy. The letter itself is, is Paul helping Timothy to love and follow Jesus. But that's not all. As we travel throughout these 10 weeks, we're going to come across passages such as uh, 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul's discipling of Timothy, if we look at it, extends to Timothy's discipling of others. Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 2, And what you, Timothy, have heard and seen in me, you should also entrust to faithful men and, and women, in that Greek word, who will be able to teach others also. So the book of 2 Timothy may not contain the words discipling or disciple-making, but rest assured, the entire point of this letter from Paul is to help Timothy love and follow Jesus and to help Timothy help others love and follow Jesus and that those others would help others to love and follow Jesus. Do we see the cyclical nature that disciples of Christ are to make disciples of Christ who make disciples of Christ. I love the fact that every single Christian in the world today is a Christian because Paul and the other eyewitness apostles, as well as Timothy, took discipling very seriously. We heard about the gospel because someone told us about the gospel. And so the title, Passing the Torch, if I'm honest is just a hipster millennial way of saying discipling. (laughs) But, uh, and I love these banners, by the way. Um, The creative department uh, at Substance is incredible. The torch is also very symbolic, right, of the tremendously difficult situation in which Paul wrote this letter. And so let's dive into that for a moment. For any of you who might have studied 2 Timothy before, just a little bit of context. Paul wrote this letter from a prison cell in Rome. In fact, according to church tradition, he probably wrote it from the bottom-most dungeon of the Mamertine prison. It was a dark dungeon that was four floors underground, and it sat directly on top of a running spring, inches on, over top of this spring that ran underneath the prison. And it was, it was cold. It was, it was approaching winter. Right? So imagine here, it's a temporary holding cell for those awaiting trial after being arrested for various crimes, which at the time, under Nero's rule, probably included some prohibition of preaching the gospel. This wasn't Paul's first time in prison, but it was probably his first time in the infamous Mamertine prison as winter approached and the cold spring underneath. Now, to get an idea of this room, imagine roughly a two-car garage with really low hanging ceilings. And all around, is it's made of, of large, cold, and damp stones. Imagine, 30, 40 feet underground. And the only way to get down in this cell was to be lowered through a tiny hole in the ceiling through three floors to get to the level that Paul most likely would have been in. And, and church tradition holds that he was in this. Paul was probably chained to a wall alongside anyone else who might have been awaiting trial. Now imagine with me the smells 
of urine and feces and anything and everything else that would be running down through the cracks of the stone floors from the cells above. Imagine the sounds of the echoes of of lunatics and murderers moaning and shouting as they were taken up to their execution, as Paul soon would be. At the time of writing this letter to Timothy, Paul would have already likely known and received his death sentence, uh, which he alludes to in chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, when he writes to Timothy, The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And the fact that Paul knows of his impending execution, it plays a major role in the tone and the content of this letter. Firstly, this letter is deeply personal. More so than any other of Paul's letters, even 1 Timothy and Titus, the other two pastoral epistles, It's deeply personal. Church, Paul was lonely. And he desperately wanted to see Timothy, his beloved son in the faith, one last time before his execution. Twice in chapter 4, we'll get to it throughout this series, but he asks Timothy to come and visit him. And in chapter 1, verse 4, this morning's passage, Paul writes, As I remember your tears... The tears Timothy would have, would have cried when they departed from one another. I long to see you, Timothy, that I may be filled with joy. Another big reason why Paul wrote this last and, and second letter to Timothy is because Timothy needed encouragement in his pastoral post in the city of Ephesus. See, while the Christians at Ephesus were not facing the same persecutions as the Christians in Rome were starting to face, Timothy and his church members, they still were facing various forms of false teaching that were trying to make its way into the church, that was gaining popularity in the city of Ephesus, a result of which would almost certainly mean suffering for the true Christians at Ephesus who were beginning to look like narrow-minded bigots for the exclusive claims of their leader, Christ. Does this not sound familiar? Timothy, as a young pastor, is understandably intimidated and frightened to continue the work of discipling in Ephesus. And thus, I believe that the main thrust of this letter, the main reason why Paul wrote this letter to Timothy was to rally his son in the faith to stir up this young man whom he'd met in Lystra. We can read that story in Acts chapter 16. He's writing him to strengthen this young disciple who had accompanied him on many missionary journeys, who'd observed him and witnessed the power of the gospel through his ministry. And being the final letter of Paul, this last letter, the book of 2 Timothy, is a last will and testament. Listen, only the most basic and important instructions made the cut for this letter. And oh, how relevant his instructions are to us today. Listen to the themes, the instructions we're going to be going through in the next 10 weeks. uh, Paul writes to Timothy, expect 
suffering. Expect it. It's coming. But persevere in the gospel of Christ. And while you're at it, cherish the scriptures so as to guard against false teaching that will try to come into the church. And Timothy and Substance Church, until death, even if it means we are in a prison cell, never stop discipling. Always keep passing the torch. Because discipling is the means by which Jesus has ordained the spread of his good news through the power of the Holy Spirit. Discipling is the means by which Jesus has ordained the growth and sanctification and preservation of his church through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so for those of us sitting here, or in my case, standing here this morning, wondering how on earth we could possibly be used like a Paul or a Timothy to make lasting disciples, how on earth we could be used to help someone love and follow Jesus more, I want you to know this. It's a quote from Pastor J.D. Greer. The tip of the gospel spear has always been ordinary people. Hallelujah. The future of the Great Commission, praise God, does not rest on apostolic figures or supermen, but on ordinary men and women who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit who are called Christians. Discipling is the delight-filled duty of everyone who has believed the good news of Jesus' redemption. Not just pastors, not just educated theologians. Discipling is the delight-filled duty of all Christians. And today's passage shows us the how and why of discipling. If you're a note-taker or if you have a copy of the bulletin, you'll see my, my, the, the title of my sermon is The Model and Motivation for Making Disciples. And in the short time we have left, we're going to consider three M's because I love alliteration. Number one, the mandate for discipling. Number two, the model for discipling. And number three, the motivation for discipling. The mandate, the model, the motivation. Throughout the rest of this time, we're going to be underneath one of those headings. So you, if you get lost, it's on you, okay? Or it's on my bad communication skills. Let's read this word of God one more time. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. 
Let's look at number one, the mandate, the command, the commission for discipling. After Jesus' resurrection in Matthew chapter 28, he gathered all of his disciples around him. We know this memory verse in verses 18 and 20 through 20. He says, all authority, guys, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go, therefore, you, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, hallelujah, to the end of the age. Jesus mandates that each one of his followers is to help, uh, is to, is to help others love and follow him. Jude, probably Jesus' half-brother, echoes this mandate in the book of Jude, verses 20 and 21, when he writes that we are to build each other up in the faith. And Peter reminds us that we are to use our gifts to serve others. And Paul exhorts us to speak the truth in love without ceasing so that others may become mature in the Lord. The mandate for discipling is written all throughout Scripture. And it can mean winning people to Christ. We call this this version of discipling evangelism, but it's discipling. And it can also be raising them up in Christ, which is discipling proper, so to speak. Discipling is so central and so fundamental to the Christian faith. This is sobering. Pastor Mark Dever writes in one of his books, We might not be Christians if we're not laboring to make disciples. In other words, we can have fancy theology... We can have well-designed logos and quality music and we can have, when Ronnie's here, dynamic preaching. But if we're not individually embracing the mandate to make disciples, if we're not intentionally using our time and talents and resources to help someone else love and follow Jesus, we might just be missing the entire point. Jesus didn't commission one super handsome, talented guy to go, therefore, and put on an expensive laser light show with a cross on the wall and a slick motivational speech once a week. He equipped and commissioned every single individual follower he had to go and do the same as he did. To embrace discipling, not as a program or an event, but as a way of life. He charged each of us with the responsibility. It's a joy-filled responsibility. Each of us has a vital role in building up Substance Worcester and making it healthy. The health of Substance Church does not rest on Pastor Ronnie or Pastor Jeff or our newly instated pastor, Pastor Zach, or myself. It does not rest on us alone. The health of Substance Church rests on all of us here, right now, taking this mandate very seriously to help one another love and follow Jesus, to pass the torch of the good news to the glory of God. And what luck. Because verses 3 through 7 of today's passage, in these verses, Paul shows us how we are to do that. So let's look at point number 2, the model for discipling. 
Helping someone else to love and follow Christ involves three simple components. I'm not going to call them steps because we don't move from one to the other. We are always doing all three of these things. Number one, underneath the model for discipling, number one is this. Discipling is fueled by prayer. Number two, discipling is rooted in relationship. Number three, discipling is committed to building up in the gospel, whoever we may be discipling. So let's quickly look. Discipling is fueled by prayer. The first component of the, of the model for discipling. In verse 3, Paul writes to Timothy, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. In other words, I thank God for you, Timothy, and I pray for you all the time. Paul was a trained Pharisee. Therefore, he was a beast when it came to the discipline of prayer. You, you, you could bet that if, if, if you asked Paul to pray for you, he was not only not going to forget, he wasn't going to lob up some half-hearted, while pumping gas, just oh, be with him because I said I would pray for him. He was going to actually labor on your behalf constantly. I don't know if you have people like this in your life. I do. I love these people that when I ask for them to pray... Like Paul, they are going to go to work for me on my behalf. And Paul's particular prayer for Timothy would have been rooted in an understanding of what Timothy was going through. It would have been, his prayers would have been based on specific knowledge of Timothy's situation in Ephesus. So, giving the content of this letter, Paul knew an awful lot about what was going on in Ephesus. False teachers, growing persecutions, all of these things were affecting Timothy. And so therefore, I bet you, Paul's prayers were bent toward Timothy's loyalty to and perseverance in the good news. That God would embolden him. Now, how about you and I? Who are the individuals Who are the one or two or maybe three people that we can handle in our life who we are directly helping to love and follow Jesus? Who are we discipling? And the next question is, are we praying for them all day? Every time we think, God, oh Lord, give my wife peace uh, and, and your presence today. Oh Lord, convince my coworker of his need for Christ Holy Spirit, convict my young friend and help me to speak the truth to him in love. If God were to answer every one of your prayers today, who would be saved? If God were to answer every one of my prayers today, who would be led by name into deeper, richer, stronger fellowship with Christ? Or am I not praying for that? Are you not praying for someone else? I think this is an indictment on the church's actual belief in the power of prayer and what it accomplishes. The simple, wonderful, mysterious truth about prayer is that there are things, church, that God has willed to come to pass that will only come to pass through prayer. As the recently uh, deceased beloved theologian R.C. Sproul taught me in his book, Let Us Pray, it's not because prayer in any way changes God. 
but because prayer in every way changes things according to God's good, holy, eternal counsel and sovereign will. We are called to pray for those whom God has brought to us to help them love and follow Jesus. Discipling is fueled by prayer. Secondly, discipling is rooted in relationship. Paul writes in verses 4 and 5 to Timothy, As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you. Paul had a deep, long-term relationship with Timothy. He knew Timothy's story, his history. He knew his testimony. He knew his family's testimony. He spent lots of time with Timothy on their missionary journeys, and they did the stuff of life together. And what I mean by that is they probably shared many, countless meals. They probably walked many miles They probably had many arguments and hopefully just as many apologies. They would have prayed together and sang together. They would have studied the scriptures together. They would have listened to each other share stories and tell jokes and confess sins. Together they would have faced many difficulties and shared many victories. Just as Jesus had done with his disciples, Paul was now doing with Timothy. And here's here's the basis of it. They were doing life together with Jesus at the center. That's the way we need to think about discipling. That's the basis for our entire community group model. Why do you think we push this so hard? I'm, I'm preaching to myself right now. It's not any more complicated than intentionally doing life with someone and having Jesus at the center of it. Day in, day out, week after week. Because real discipling is rooted in real relationship. In middle school, I had this friend who was a few years older than me. He was in high school. His name was Seth Bartel. And we met at a church event And kind of became friends, and it was super cool because he was older, and he started asking me to hang out with him once a week. That's how it started, once a week. There was no agenda. Sometimes we would just drive around, and and we would listen to his favorite band, Cademan's Call, because Seth wasn't that cool. But but I actually appreciated Cademan's Call. Other times we would just throw the Frisbee in the park. And it seemed the more he got to know me, the more intentional he was about spending time with me. Whenever we, together, we were together, I felt like I could be myself because I just, I, he was being himself. He wasn't perfect. He would often lead with his struggles, telling me about sins and struggles, and he would often model what repentance looked like right there in the car, asking God to forgive him for the way he was thinking about something. And he always managed to encourage me in my younger walk with Christ. Now, here's the thing. Seth didn't have anywhere near a master's of divinity. He wasn't deep in his super uber biblical spiritual knowledge, but he understood the gospel and he believed in its power enough to literally just always point me to it. Always, without ceasing, no matter what I was going through. Discipling is no more complicated than doing life with someone else and having Jesus right in the center living out our faith with all the baggage intact in front of someone else like Seth did with me. 
like Jesus did, minus the baggage, with the three and the twelve, and like Paul did with Timothy. See, the freeing thing about discipling is it doesn't have to be another program that we schedule or it doesn't have to be another morning meeting. We're all busy. I get that. In fact, it's better that our discipling not be another event. But rather, what are we already doing that we can just simply invite someone else to do with us? Ladies, I mean, I don't mean to stereotype here, but you're probably going to go to the grocery store this week at some point. Or, or Lindsay might send me. But in those moments, who could you call? A young woman in the church. Hey, I'll, I'll drive 10 minutes out of the way. Can I come pick you up? We're just going to walk through Beeler's together. We're going to dump a bunch of expensive groceries into you know, the cart and, and we're going we're gonna to brave the self-checkout together. But all the while, just doing that once a week with the same young woman, all the while you can be praying for each other, talking about life, sharing about what you're doing in the Word and what you're learning. Guys, I will never be caught changing my own oil, but some of you will be. When, what calling a younger man and saying, man, come on over, or let me come pick you up. This is about a half-hour job. Let's just sit in my shop. Let's chat about Jesus. Let me tell you about what he's doing. Or let's not. Let's talk about, talk about sports and, and just build that facet of our relationship. But ultimately, what we're gearing toward is creating a culture of discipling out of really what could be just our, our, our community groups. You can think about it as, as a base camp. Right? That's where we're just, we're meeting people that we're already kind of doing regular life with. So, man, you know, Chad Miller, he's in my community. Come, come over once a week and let's throw darts. I don't do that, but I'll start throwing darts. See, the good news about this way of discipling is that we're not adding something else to the program. We're already doing these things. We're just doing them with a little bit of intentionality and we're bringing someone along for the ride with the point of hopefully steering them in the direction of the gospel. And some of us might need to become more articulate with the gospel. There are books such as What is the Gospel? by Greg Gilbert, which are brilliant. Or Who is Jesus? by Greg Gilbert, which is brilliant. Easy reads. Sooner or later, we will actually form a real, raw relationship with this person. The Lord leads to us. Maybe your spouse, and should be primarily your spouse, or your, your children, secondarily. Be, essentially, the older friend to this person that you wanted when you were that age. Discipling is rooted in relationship. Man, I got, I went really on a tangent there. All right, number three. Discipling is committed to building up in the gospel. Let's look at verses six through seven. Paul writes... For this reason, or basically, because of the faith I know to be in you, Timothy, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us the spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Paul had spent so much quality time with his young disciple Timothy, he was able to identify and encourage spiritual gifts. He was able to bolster him in the truth of the gospel, reminding Timothy that God hadn't saved him and called him to just let him drown in intimidation in Ephesus. Quite the contrary. God had saved him and called him into power and love and confidence that comes from the resurrected Christ. 
the ultimate goal of our discipling is to see that person built up strong in the knowledge that they are loved and accepted and gifted by God in Christ to help serve the body. And they too are disciples. They shouldn't be afraid to use their gifts, their time and talent and resources for the spiritual good of someone a little bit younger than them. And the ultimate, ultimate goal, of course, is essentially what I just inferred, is that we're creating disciples who go and create disciples to the glory of God. And so those components that are, that are always just in cyclical motion, underneath the heading of the model of discipling, discipling is, is fueled by prayer, discipling is rooted in relationship, discipling is committed to building up others in the gospel. This is the model It is how we obey the mandate. But in closing, and I know you know that there's a point that we're still to get to. It's going to be brief. The sobering reality this morning is that in our natural selves, we are fallen individuals living in a fallen culture. And the lie that we have believed in 21st century America is that our best life is the self-oriented life in which our primary focus is my goals, my dreams, my career, my things. Oh, how much joy we're missing out on. The way of discipling runs so deeply against our grain that nothing short of a miracle is required to shake us out of our self-oriented trajectory. It's a trajectory we've been on since the Garden of Eden, ever since our first ancestors and and us, federally, if you want to go theological on it. We were there. We turned our backs on God in favor of of worshiping ourselves and doing things our way. And so what motivation could we possibly have to be like a Paul in Mamertine prison still making disciples? We see it in verse 1. Here's the motivation. Paul begins his letter to Timothy like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, hallelujah. Here we go. According to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Or as the Christian Standard Bible translates it, for the sake of that promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Everything Paul was about, Everything Paul did, he did as an extension and as a response to the promise of true and real and abundant and everlasting actual life in Christ Jesus. And those who have truly received this life, those who have tasted it, those whose hearts have, who have been set aflame by this life cannot help themselves but to set others aflame with it. Those who behold the glorious torch of the gospel are compelled to share it. It burns. To pass it on. To light up the world. Because it's such good news that we behold. That we who were once imprisoned in our own mamertine of self-orientation and self-worship and self-focus and self-love, we who were once imprisoned in that mamertine have been released by the blood of Jesus. 
who came to earth from heaven to do what no other human had done before him. To live life as God intended it in a posture of self-giving others orientation. We read about it in chapter 2 of Philippians. Jesus came as a servant. Though he is God, he did not consider his divinity as something to be exploited while here on earth, but in humility he made himself lowly and he prioritized us. Thank God. He prioritized the well-being of others. He looked upon my hopeless imprisonment of self. Ugh. And he became my self-centeredness. He became the most selfish individual on the planet on the cross for me in my place and yours if you are in Christ Jesus. And he paid the penalty for it. He did it. It's done. Hallelujah. And now we can be freed to actually apprehend and take hold of life. It's actual life to lay our life down in service of others. Take, I, I would say call, call the Lord on that this week. Try to, try to outdo one another with, with selflessness and service to others and just see how maybe happy your heart is and how full it is to prioritize others, to disciple others, to help others love and follow Jesus like a flame, like a torch. Let me back up. I think, in this, I'm closing. I think it's tempting to think that when we give our lives to others, that we're going to be subtracting something from what we have. But think about the flames of a birthday cake. You always light the, you light the first one, and then you use that, and you light all the other ones. How much smaller does that one get? It doesn't. But it gets the company of all that other birthday magic in the cake. Think about it. Rather, the life we've been given in Christ mysteriously increases the more we try to give it away. And so let's call the Lord on it. Let's do that together this week as we observe the mandate, the model, and the motivation for discipling. I went long. Sorry. Let's pray. <clears throat> I love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. I cannot thank you enough for your word, for the Holy Spirit who teaches it. I pray, Lord, that we would have been in some way, shape, or form, by your grace alone, not my oratory skills. I pray that we would have been affected in, in a small way today, that we would see the priority of discipling God, that we would be shaken from complacency, that the fire would flicker, that we would just delight in this idea that we've been entrusted with this torch, that we get to pass on to others to help them love and follow you. I pray we would do it, Lord, by your grace, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.